0: Hello, my name is Fran Stoddard, and today the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on community-driven philanthropy, how involving residents and finding funds locally leads to vibrant, more sustainable communities. Joining us today are Lisa Durant. She's the Executive Director of Grassroots Grantmakers. Hi, Lisa. Welcome from Denver. Hello. Or at least Colorado. Thank you
1: very much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Terrific. And Don Mackey, he is the co-founder and the director of entrepreneurial communities at the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship. Welcome, Don, from Nebraska.
2: Yes, good afternoon. Glad to be with you. Terrific.
0: And also welcome to Tom Harnett. He is the mayor of Gardner, Maine. Great to have you on board, Tom.
3: Thanks very much for having me. I look forward
0: to the day. And thank you all for being with us today to share your knowledge and wisdom. Before we get to our guests, I'm just going to cover a few quick logistics. Each speaker will offer brief five to seven minute overviews, and then we'll have an interactive time for questions from today's participants. Many of you have already sent in questions, we thank you. We have over 275 registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond, so we have muted all the listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document. It's a shared online document for note-taking and questions so you can interact with us. You can open that document in your browser to follow along while Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes. These notes will be proofread and refined after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. We encourage you to open the Google Doc now to check it out. You can add your own comments and questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. And some people have already gone in there today and started doing that. However, to avoid redundancy, it's a good idea to skim through the document to see questions that have already been submitted. The edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time. So if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute to the doc. We will also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and references. Then in a few days, we'll send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with the Google Docs during the call, clicking the refresh icon should fix it. If you're having any technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at orton.org. Thanks so much for joining us. And now on to our guests. We'll start with Lisa Duran. She is the executive director of Grassroots Grantmakers, offering learning and support to community investors, mostly foundations, that seek to better partner with residents. Prior to that, as a bilingual community organizer, Lisa was a key figure organizing in Colorado's immigrant rights movement. She also served as executive director of the Clinica Tepeyac, bringing culturally appropriate health care services to the medically underserved in the Denver region. And she worked with the Grassroots Institute for fundraising, training, among other wonderful works. She now works to bring together issues of structural racism, equity and inclusion with the need to ensure that those most impacted lead change. Lisa, go ahead with your overview.
1: Thank you very much. And hello to everyone who's on this call. It's um It's a pleasure to be here with my fellow panelists, and so let me just share quickly a little bit about grassroots grantmakers and some of the initial thoughts that I have um, to to start off our conversation. Uh, You heard our quick introduction um, of grassroots grantmakers, and we really, um, I have to say, the deeper I get into this work, I do believe that the most important underpinning of it is is the strengthening and supporting of relationships. And when I say that, I don't mean strategic relationships that can help us get what we want, although uh, we do need that. I mean real relationships where there is vulnerability, honesty, openness, trust um, between individuals uh, who then can come together and decide what to do with the resources that they have um, at hand. Um, our tagline is we begin with residents. And so we do things like, for instance, we have um, – a uh, learning event called On the Ground, which is a multi-day conversation. But we make sure that we include um, between a third to a half of the folks as resident leaders. Uh, we are hosted by a funder who's committed to real partnership with the grassroots. And we try to make sure that every, at every opportunity, residents will speak for themselves. So and, – and we think this is so important because social change – I think, will not and cannot happen without real relationships. As an organizer in immigrant rights, the only time I ever saw someone change their mind about undocumented immigrants was when they were able to personally talk and share with someone in that situation and began to see, oh, this person is just like me. And in this time of division in which we see our our country really polarizing and communities really polarizing and people not speaking across ideological divides, uh, being willing to speak with people as <laughs> fellow human beings, I think, can do a lot to move us to um, to communities that are stronger. Um, I think also we have to think about relationships as a gateway for meaningful participation of residents in uh, philanthropy. Uh, we do believe at Grassroots Grantmakers that residents um, should be meaningfully engaged at every level of funding that happens, uh, especially when it impacts the communities in which they live. And the way that, that that's gonna happen is by making sure that from the beginning, residents help to design funding initiatives and they help to build the strategies around outcomes and they help to decide who gets funding, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't mean that you just go out willy-nilly and pull a resident off the street. Um, it means that, that um, individuals and organizations need to understand the power and the privilege dynamics that exist in this relationship, and find the ways to set them aside. And um, I think deciding that relationships are important are is a very crucial first step in that process. When we talk about building the relationships in grant making. You know, I, it is my hope that more and more resources come to the grassroots, um, meaningful resources in large amounts. But I think it's also important to realize that small grant making, um, can be a great way for, for community members to become philanthropists. And a grant of $100 or $500, if it's accompanied by meaningful relationship building and community organizing, can start to turn a community around. And, some of our members have done things like give a hundred dollars to the local DJ to purchase uh, better sound equipment, so that person's business, um, which he in which he uh, offers, you know, he does parties and and but also public gatherings, etcetera, um, that it can help to build that community fabric. And by making sure that that person is not just connected to the money but also the people, those kinds of events begin to have uh, an impact greater than than you than you might think. And one of the conditions of those small grants um, should be that people need to fail. I really would like to talk about democratizing failure because I feel like the venture capitalists get to do it. <laughs> but uh, we often can be so uh, tight in philanthropy about failure of a grantee and sometimes failure many, many times. Failure is a way to learn. Very meaningfully, very deeply, and um, actually make the efforts better going on into the future. I'll wrap up my part of this by saying that, you know, I think I don't think that there's anyone in the field of philanthropy who would say that relationships are not important. I think everyone understands that they are. But I think that given the divisions and dynamics in our society, the inequalities in our society, there are so many times when relationships happen but that large groups of people or important groups of people are left out. And so I'll end by saying it's not just about the relationships. It's about making sure that everyone who should be – it's about the inclusion as well, making sure that everyone who should be at the table is there. And um, finding those invisible people is part of our job, part of our work, and um, we could speak about if – if anyone is interested, we could talk about some of the methods or some of the experiences um, – Of finding those uh, pockets of folks that are important members of our community, but unseen to certain groups of people. So with that, I'll go ahead and turn it back to Fran.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Lisa. And uh, that is a very important piece. Um, uh, Maybe we'll get back to that during the Q&A time, that finding, finding the right people. Um, I also love the, the failure piece, and um, yes, cap- venture capitalists get to get to fail <laughs> and often, too, so it's a very good point. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, Don Mackey right now. He's the co-founder and director of Entrepreneurial Communities at the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship. Don helps communities and regions throughout North America grow entrepreneur-focused economic development strategies. He works with strategic partnerships, across the country to deliver customized economic development solutions. Don is also active in community development philanthropy and conducted the first statewide transfer of wealth study in Nebraska in 2002. Don has nearly 40 years of community economic development and policy experience. We're so glad you're with us today. Take it away, Don.
2: Great. Well, thank you, folks. Greetings from Nebraska. I was asked to talk about community philanthropy, and with the brief time I have with you, I want to touch on three things. One is just kind of put front of mind the magnitude of the opportunity that's out before communities across uh, North America. I want to touch on place-based philanthropy and why I believe that is so important by sharing a very quick story from a favorite community of mine, Red Cloud, Nebraska. And then I want to wrap with kind of a longer view, stepping back, why this is so important reflecting on a region right now in crisis where the outcomes possibly could have been different. So let me begin with the opportunity. Uh, As Fran indicated, um, we are involved in the transfer of wealth research. We got interested in that research. uh, Like any good uh, community economic developer, we were looking for money. We had become interested in community foundations as a way to generate resources to support community building. And we felt it was important to understand what was the magnitude of the philanthropic opportunity. So in this particular case, I want to just give you some updated national numbers. Um, we're measuring household wealth and the portion of that wealth that could be a bill available for philanthropic giving. Um, you know, we've gone through the tough patch of the Great Recession. Overall, household wealth is recovered, but, of course, That's not been uniform. There are still significant segments of American society that have not come back. But this is an important opportunity in the sense that we have significant numbers of people who care. The vast majority of Americans are already charitable and give back. And for some, there's this deep love of hometown. And I think that's reflected in what's happened with the South Dakota Community Foundation, which serves very rural communities in South Dakota. But after 30 years, now has nearly a half a billion dollars in asset, assets spread across communities and organizations all over rural South Dakota funding critically important work. In the U.S., we project over the next 50 years that the transfer of wealth will be $75 trillion. If just 5% of that was captured back into endowments in communities across America, uh, we'd be looking at somewhere close to $4 billion dollars that could support nearly $200 million a year forever in grant making. That would be equivalent of creating five new Gates family foundations. So the magnitude is significant even in communities that are relatively poor, the opportunity exists. So let me kind of tie this down to what it means for community. Uh, Over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with Red Cloud Nebraska. It's the home of Nebraska author Willa Cather. It's a special place. Uh, it has uh, just under 4,000 people, um, and it's lost over half of its population since the 1930s. And so this is a community that's gone through profound change and stress. It was one of the first rural communities to join the Nebraska Community Foundation. Uh, today they have about $5 million in permanent discretionable uh, assets in the foundation. But I think what's more important is the strategic role that community philanthropy and the Red Cloud um, uh, community fund has played. One of the first things they did is they brought the community together and, like Heart and Soul, went through a community visioning and strategic planning process that began to open up where are the possibilities to grow a stronger community. And in doing so, they identified three big goals. One was out of a commitment to create a place that would welcome young families, a commitment to um, zero to, to five early childhood education, and uh, construction of that facility will begin in the spring, and an endowment is growing that would support staff that would make this affordable for everyone. The second is recognizing the heritage tourism opportunity. Uh, the community committed to raising the money through the foundation and others to hire their first economic developer. In this case, it's a young man who grew up there, has come back, and his focus is in heritage tourism. And it's making a huge difference in terms of their ability to develop that part of the economy. And then the final is, with the leadership of the Cather Foundation working with the community, a $10 million restoration of the moon block, the historic downtown that is so central to the Cather story. So, community philanthropy can play this powerful role of bringing small amounts of money, big amounts of money, that can really support a community. Uh, finding the right vision, the right goals, and ultimately to capitalize those to make them reality. So let me leave you with this. Um, Another part of the country that I've had the opportunity to work in is Central Appalachia. Uh, We've done a lot of work in Appalachian, Kentucky. Uh, We're a partner with Jerry Roll at the Community Foundation uh, for Appalachian, Kentucky. And of course, that part of the world has gone through tough times, but is particularly challenged today as communities are fighting very hard to have a future, given uh, the decline of the coal mining industry in that part of America. And so uh, I was playing around with some of the numbers. And uh, of course, this region has produced massive amounts of coal. And if we look at just the last generation, and if we were to take just the 4.5% uh, severance tax that the state of Kentucky imposes on that coal, had that 4.5% 4, 4. been committed to creating permanent endowments in communities throughout coal country and Appalachian Kentucky, nearly $5 billion could be assembled. And what that would mean is the capacity to uh, invest nearly $250 million a year, every year forever, back into reinventing the economies, addressing community needs engaging in the basic work of community building. So part of the message is if you've not committed to community philanthropy, the best time to start would have been 25 years ago, but the next best time is to start today. It's critically important, in our opinion, building healthy, vibrant economies. I'll turn it back to you.
0: Thank you so much, Don, and thank you for crunching those numbers. It's, it's, um, it's very inspirational. So, also joining us today is Tom Harnett, now serving his third term as mayor of Gardner, Maine. Tom recently retired from the State Office of the Attorney General, where he served as an Assistant Attorney General. In that office, he directed the enforcement of the Maine Civil Rights Act and established civil rights teams in more than 220 schools statewide for which he was recognized as a social landscape artist. Love that title. Tom is also a past president of the Maine Bar Foundation, which funds entities that provide legal services to vulnerable populations. Tom has also been active in Gardner's Community Heart and Soul Project. Thank you so much for being here, Tom, and for telling us some more stories, of, uh, on-the-ground stories of what's
3: gone on in Gardner, Maine. Well, thank you, Fran, and and thank you to all those that are listening for allowing me the chance to talk today. And and my talk's going to be a little different than the ones that that just preceded me, because I'm going to talk about one particular year. I'm going to talk about 2015. I was just starting my second term as mayor of our small city, which has a population of about 5,700. And 2015 became the year of fires in Gardner. It started in February a very cold winter's night when a senior housing complex burned down, leaving 36 people homeless. We had a second major fire in July in our historic downtown where 12 people were left homeless, and there was a major disruption to our downtown and local businesses. Those were followed by three house fires, including one the day before Thanksgiving, and those fires displaced three families. I soon found out, that there was no playbook on how a mayor is to respond to these types of community tragedies. I learned as I went along, and I just want to summarize some of the things that I learned. First is there are resources out there that are ready and waiting to help you when these things happen, and I'm going to list four. One is the Red Cross, two is the United Way, three are your local churches, and four are your local banks. My advice, use them. That's what they're there for. You're not a burden. Use them, but recognize what they can provide is immediate but short-term relief in terms of housing and immediate relocation. The second thing I learned was never underestimate the power and depth of your community's response to crisis. In Gardner, after every fire, that response was immediate, heartwarming, and enduring. One of the things we did pretty well is we had rapid response meetings one day after the event with legislators, social service agencies, housing experts, and charities with all of the persons affected by the fires. I'm just going to give you some small examples, not an exhaustive list, of other entities that helped us out. One was the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Gardner, Maine. They allowed the victims of the fires, to go there to eat, to share meals, to talk to one another. They gave them space to store any furniture that had been salvaged and also furniture that was going to be replaced. And they were, as I said, a gathering place, which was very important, particularly for the senior community, because those people had lived together sometimes for 25 years, and then they were scattered immediately as a result of the fire. We also worked very closely with furniture stores who gave substantial discounts to people who were victimized by the fire. We were very successful in getting gift cards from local grocers and other merchants to meet basic needs. We had traditional things like spaghetti dinners sponsored by local restaurants. And we had lots of cash donations by members of our community. And I'll talk about how we handle those in the question and answer section. The other thing we thought was important to do is to thank those people who helped with the fires. And for that, I turned to July, when we had the fire in our historic downtown. We had nine community partners who joined with the Gardner Fire Department to fight that fire, and we wanted to give them a community thank you. So we had a dinner for all of the firefighters from all communities with their families. Hundreds attended. All of the food was donated by a single butcher in town was all cooked by volunteers from the Rotary. We followed that with a free waterfront concert and, oddly enough, fireworks. Um, one of the things I worried about after the fifth fire is are we going to have donor fatigue? Just how much can we ask our community to do? And I'm happy to say that that was not a problem. The third thing I learned is use the media. The media can be your best friend at this time. And when I talk about the media, I mean print, radio, and television. Radio, in particular, is always looking for people to do the public service shows on Sunday mornings, and they look for uh, events on morning, morning talk shows. And, with, and working with radio and television allows you to tell the human stories, to be the voice of the victims. And trust me, it makes a difference, and it leads to more help. Sometimes you have to give different messages. After the fire in downtown, the message was not just help us, it was we are open for business. Please remember our merchants who were not hurt by the fire. Be a bother to the media. Never turn down an opportunity to talk, and when you do talk, talk about some of the successes as well. The fourth thing I learned is don't be afraid to fail with an ask. Uh, all you can do is hear the word no. We had a multinational business that had a branch in Gardner, and I was happy, and it proved out to be I shouldn't have been unhappy, with how they first responded to the first fire. So I did something I never thought I could do. I called up the international headquarters, explained the story, hoping I would get a couple of thousand dollars from them. I was put on hold for a while. They got back on the phone, and they said, we're mailing you a check for $25,000. Totally unexpected. I'm no longer afraid to call anybody. The fifth and last thing is, I think we need to rethink our definition of philanthropy. So many people think it's just about getting money from large foundations, but the true definition of philanthropy is love of community. And I saw in 2015 that that can come in many forms. We live in a rural community. Some people couldn't give money, but they had pickup trucks to help people move furniture, to provide transportation, to take people shopping. We had people who housed people who were displaced, fed people who were displaced, and sometimes simply holding one's hand when they share the pain of their loss, the photographs,
2: the memories,
3: means so much to them. There are so many ways one can help in addition to writing a check. Two examples, we had an art auction after the downtown fire with local and community artists donating work, and that auction raised over $7,000 in three hours. They might not have had money to give, but they gave the gift of their talents to raise money. One of the things I saw as a result of all of this tragedy was our community was actually made stronger. Um, We subsequently had an auction for a family dealing with a very serious medical issue, and were able to raise $5,000, again, with items donated by merchants and stores, and the same butcher donated all of the food. Um, And I've seen that success begets success. Um, we've received many more grants, CDBG grants, uh, to help our food industry. We're trying to develop Gardner as a food hub. And our success in dealing with crisis has led to success in moving forward. Um, I'm going to close with, and it's going to sound perhaps a, a little corny, but I witnessed true philanthropy in 2015. I learned that the love of humanity is all around us in Gardner, Maine. And the analogy I use is that in New England, you know, we have trees and the maple trees have sap in them. But the first thing you have to do is you have to find those trees with the sap and then you have to tap into them if you want to make maple syrup. And what you need to do with local community members is identify those that want to help and let them help any way they can but tap into them and the product they produce will make for a much stronger and healthier community. And with that, I'll turn it back to Fran.
0: Well, thank you so much, Tom. I'll try not to be uh, try to get over my being choked up by your wonderful stories. Um, and you may not have had the playbook, but clearly you intuited what was needed in your town. And and your stories are very very inspiring. And there have been some questions about. Um, both from uh, Jess in New Hampshire, um, uh, I'd like to be part of developing a philanthropic mindset for my town. How does one go about igniting this movement? And also Mary from Texas, where and how do we start? Certainly, Tom has given us some really concrete examples of how to start and and get going, uh, especially when there is a, is a disaster. Uh, other other thoughts, uh, Lisa, that you might have, and I'll, I'll also turn to Don about how people just get started, get that mindset going, ignite a movement where a town becomes more philanthropic. Lisa?
1: Well, thank you. Yes, thanks. Um, it's a great question, and um, I think the first and most important thing is, is that we have to just start. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, people hesitate because they want to do it the right way, and really – People need to uh, make just go out and uh, and and drop by people's offices. Um, the chair of our board loves to visit with people on their front porches. Um, and what I do as well is I make I try to I try to to learn as much as I can about a community so that I can see if I'm in different places who's in who's not there that needs to be there. But I don't know I can't know who's not there if I don't know. How the community is composed so um, also if there are languages different languages spoken that of course raises another you know uh, challenge that needs to be surmounted but it's totally surmountable Um, if if there are different language groups in town um, there are always bridge builders between those groups and it's really important to find those people so that you know there can be entree uh, in communities and you know really again um there was a question in here something like, well, what kind of incentives do you offer to people to get their attendance? And I would say that the incentive is the relationship. I, you know, I often, if someone makes a lets me know that I am personally important to them. We, we need you here. We'd like to, you to be here, um, and and I have some kind of um, former prior relationship with that person. I'm going to come because you asked me to. Unless I, you know, unless you're somebody that's crazy, <laughs> you know, we we need to be connected biologically. Bio, you know, we are we are hooked up as social animals, and so getting to know people and um and having conversations with them, not just about what's happening in the community, but who are their kids and you know how are they doing and what's been going on. You know, um, I I am so <laughs> I am so uh, gung ho about this um perhaps because for many years as an immigrant rights organizer, I was so driven to pass national immigration le- legislation. And myself and my colleagues worked day and night tirelessly. And it, it, I saw that we didn't, we, we didn't succeed, and there are many, many structural reasons why we didn't. But I also think that we missed opportunities to build relationships that could have made our movement stronger because we were so busy on the task of passing legislation, which I think anybody knows could you know just consume your whole life. So um, I I do really feel like um, simply making the effort to look a person in, in the eye and to inquire about them really goes a long way. And I'll, and to do it in a way that that makes sense, you know, if if there are folks that are not at the table that need to be at the table, somebody needs to raise the question and um, bring them in is it's so really important. Right.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Lisa. And and Don, I'll I'll just shape the question a little bit differently, um looking at a question that came in from um Racheda in New Jersey, uh who asked what community level factors help or hinder community-driven philanthropy. And and I think what um Racheda is asking is what are the conditions in the community? What is what are the readiness factors that you look for? What are the factors that, again, help or, or hinder philanthropy.
2: Yeah, um, and, and I'd kind of like to put a context around that, because philanthropy, as Tom indicated, is so much. It's from people giving of their time and talents to making a gift in a time of crisis. Um, and so I want to kind of answer your question within the context of what we call legacy philanthropy or um, and, and as it ties to community foundations. Um, you know, really beginning to enable people in the community to give in a way that that gift has the capacity to give forever. And uh I think the readiness bottom line is um uh it always starts with a small group of people who recognize the opportunity. And, and that's how we started in Nebraska, is we were marveling at what South Dakota was doing, and that inspired us to say, you know, if South C- Dakota could do this, we could do this. Um, and it started with a very small group of people, and and now the institution is approaching $150 million in assets of spread among 400 rural communities across the state. Um, so I think we've got to look for our champions. And so for the folks who ask the question, who are other folks who care about this? Then I think the second step is to create awareness. I, I'm, I'm a very strong advocate, so I'll be – unabashed in saying that if your community does not have a community foundation, you should have one. That doesn't mean you have to create your own. Uh, In many cases, you can create a foundation through another community foundation, through something called affiliation. Um, For a lot of communities, particularly smaller communities, that's a great way to go if that opportunity is available. So you have a vehicle and you have expertise that you can access through that partnership with a larger foundation to work with donors And then I think, um, not to go on, but but two other things. One is one of the reasons the transfer of wealth research that we've done all over the country has, I think, had power is it allows communities to understand the magnitude of their opportunity and then to set goals. And something happens when a community sets a goal. It, It tends to achieve that goal. It tends to then figure out how to organize itself to make that goal a reality, and I've seen this happen in hundreds of communities in different settings all over North America. And so I think that's important. I think the other thing is to help our charitable institutions, our nonprofits in our community, maybe get a little bit off the annual fundraising treadmill. I'm not sure we'll ever get off that. But to the extent that we can grow endowments – that can begin to cover core costs, that can create opportunity money when there's other money to be leveraged, money that can be brought to the table when there's an emergency, an important grant, and a nonprofit's been lost, and there needs to be bridge funding. This becomes really important. So think about this as a community-wide effort with your nonprofit's other charitable causes to really engage the, the broader community. And I think this is important because this isn't just about wealthy people giving although that's a big part of it, we have communities where 80% of the households are contributing to their community foundation. And so this becomes democratized in a way that it's very, very powerful. So if you want to look for some language, I would recommend you go to a website with the Telluride Foundation called Paradox Gives, and uh, uh, you can begin to see how small communities in southwestern Colorado are beginning to articulate the opportunity for people to give back to hometowns they love. Terrific, thank
0: you so much, Don. And kind of while we're on that, uh, a question just recently came in, uh, Tom, that talks about a Main Street program. I know you have one in Gardner, and this uh, caller writes, our community's Main Street program seems intimidated Slash, uninterested or unsure of how to begin economic development projects. Excluding a community visioning process, what are the first few steps, processes, or projects for a small city under 4000's Main Street program to take, to start economic revitalization? I, I, it seems you had great success with your Main Street program in, in Gardner. Did they, have they participated in this whole um, economic re- revitalization and, and uh, philanthropy?
3: Absolutely, and, and I'm sorry for the community that's having a, a, a less or a more challenging time with their Main Street program, but I will tell them that in Gardner we had some fits and starts um, with our Main Street program, and partly it was the person that we finally hired uh, who was just tremendous in what he does. Um, and, you know, I'll go back to something that Lisa said. It's a lot about relationships. Uh, our director of the Main Street program is uh, named Patrick Wright. And he tries to establish a personal relationship with every single business in his territory. Uh, And now he's actually also the economic developer for the city, so it gets him out of downtown. Um, So I would, and I like the idea of a visioning session. We have one with, I'm on the board of the Gardner Main Street Program, and we have one every day. I mean, excuse me, that'd be crazy. We have one every year. Uh, where we try to plan, and and not just one year ahead, so it's not year to year, as Don was saying, but really try to come up with a vision of what we want our community to look like in five years, in 10 years. And a big part of that, I think, is being positive about your community and engaging as many voices as possible and not just hearing from uh, what we call the usual suspects who show Hmm. up at every meeting. Uh, and encourage that program, and volunteer for that program, uh, because they're generally understaffed. Great.
0: Thank you. And um, just to cover another piece, Tom, while we're talking, when you when you mentioned volunteers, and earlier in your um, earlier short talk, you talked about artists and creatives. And Katie from New Jersey um, asked, how can creatives become financial stakeholders in communities that they have helped make attractive to developers and businesses. It's so interesting that she's already seeing them as financial stakeholders, when most people think, of, you know, starving artists might be able to share their talents, as you were talking about. Um, Is that mainly what they do, or do you find that they become
3: stakeholders in, in some other way as well? I think, I think they, they do both. I mean, there are, there are some struggling artists. There's no doubt about that. I mean, that's probably why we have that term. But there are also some very successful artists and they are economic drivers in our community. Uh, we have three art walks a year where we feature artwork in about 27 uh, locations in our downtown. And there are people that come to see particular artists and they come and spend money in our community. That's, economic driver to me and I think as people realize how many people that art can bring into a community they will see the value is in terms of economic dollars and and I think that's particularly true in in the musical arts and the theater arts Uh, we're trying to restore uh, Maine's oldest historic opera house um, to restore a 400-seat theater and when that is done and it will be done, we'll be attracting thousands of people um, to downtown Gardner and they're gonna spend money in Gardner, so they are part of the economic equation and they have to, I think, just point that out and um, quantify it in some way.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Tom. Uh, let me see, I'm going to go to this question from Kate from Vermont, who is looking to see how to move out of the paradigm that the wealthy give and they give generously, but in that it is implicit that the choices for support rest within the hands and hearts of those benefactors. So while it is admired and it inspires gratitude, she feels that there's little cross-sector strategy, and communities are, by definition, cross-sector, and this siloing permeates our, our culture, she feels. I think uh, Lisa was, was speaking to this um, on some level that we really need to reach out to all of the communities. Um, but, Don, I'm going to go to you first on, on this one. How do you kind of separate out those that are very wealthy and, and want to have some say about how their wealth and philanthropy is used and um, everybody else and what's needed in a community?
2: Yeah, and and I'm going to show my my biases here, folks. Um, Obviously, I'm a fan of philanthropy, but I think philanthropy can be misguided and counterproductive to community building. And I I see this with some private foundations. I see it within community foundations with donor-advised funds where the donors, however well-intentioned, are really violating the principles of community engagement, and in doing so, realizing lesser outcomes. And so I think it's critically important, and Janet Topolsky at the Aspen Institute is passionate about this, and I agree with her, um, is that using a community foundation vehicle and using the idea that every resident of the community has the opportunity to give in some way, and that the decisions about the priorities of how that asset's going to be used is going to be done through... A community process where every voice has an opportunity to be heard is important. And with that said, I think there are a number of community foundations around the country that have approached large donor-advised funds that they manage, they've approached private foundations, and they've begun to open up uh, commitments to say, think about philanthropy in this broader way. Trust the community to become engaged and to be in a stronger position to not only identify what needs to be done, but how it should be done. And I think a great example of that is with the Amarillo Area Foundation in uh, the Panhandle of Texas, its relationship with the Harrington Trust and what they have been doing over the last uh, 10 years to really say, let's move from this old model of wealthy, well-intentioned giving to one that is rooted in strong community engagement and values. Um, And so I I think there's a structural answer to this, and and how we do this is going to be there. Again, a private foundation will always have the discretion to do what it wants, but if it buys into these values, it may change the way it engages in its grant making.
0: Thank you, Don. And I'm I'm sure that Lisa has has something to speak to as well. I'm going to bring in another question that I think is is quite related that came in recently. Um, And the question is, as a government employee in a very polarized climate, which we certainly seem to have today, how do we engage all agencies, governmental and non-governmental, into a philanthropic culture without jeopardizing relationships due to political stances on both sides? And hearing how you have – you know, relationships are very, very important, and finding those invisible voices, uh, how would you respond to this government employee that doesn't want to jeopardize relationships but is very aware of political stances um, that, that people have and, and might be limiting what, what people decide to to do or, or how to go after funds?
1: Right. Well, and that's, this is a question that's actually – near and dear to my heart and and is also, it's informing my life uh, right now, my personal life. Um, my husband and I just recently moved from Denver to a tiny mountain town. It's actually two towns next to each other. Combined population is 1,000 people. And Colorado as a state went for Hillary Clinton, but this county, of which has 4,000 people total, um, 80% for Trump. And <laughs> Um, we, I, I'm, you know, I'm learning, um, how the ranching families don't talk to the Amish families that have settled there who don't talk to the retirees that are there, who don't talk to the, um, second homeowners, who, you know, it's just, uh, it's kind of interesting to see the different little communities that all exist, and everyone is very friendly, but there's not real connection, and, um, I also do feel very – I'm very concerned about the nature of civic discourse, and I feel like democracy is very challenged if we cannot speak to each other across difference. So I really believe that these are the kinds of very important um, questions that we have to – all of us have to be trying to, to answer. And, um, and I think uh, there are some great resources – that can help us think about that. There's a podcast that I love called On Being by Krista Tippett, um, and she has, I think, I, I'm gonna get this wrong, but I think it's called Civic Conversations Project, it, where she actually gives um, people h- hints and the uh, of how to have conversations across difference. It's my understanding, I haven't studied heart and soul as deeply as I want to, but um someone on this call i'm sure can let us know it does not heart and soul help us to have conversations with folks across ideological divides uh, because that's exactly um you know what building community needs to be about um, and so it, you know i i am gonna hopefully you can you can help us with that resource but i I also do feel like um and this is so funny because I used to be such a sociologist, <laughs> such a structural person, and I still believe very, very passionately that that we that what we have to do ultimately needs to change structures. Um, but I think if we don't transform ourselves as individuals, um, it's going to be impossible to transform those institutions and those structures. And the willingness and the desire. I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to recently since the election, who who have no desire to know what made people vote differently than they did. Uh, you know, people convinced that someone who voted for the other person must just be wrong, and it's literally a point of principle not to speak to someone from the other camp. And this
0: is and that yeah, this is, is, this we are is huge. And, and yes, we, we they live in the same yeah. place, and they love it, we, and they want that place to thrive. So maybe that's that's where we go. It sounds like Tom or or Don had a had a thought.
3: It, and we do yeah, have a I, number it's, it's of a, other questions, but go ahead. This is Tom, real quick, and, and it is a plug for Heart and Soul because Heart and Soul creates those conversations, and they create those conversations in a non-political way. Uh, I work with people that I disagree with on 99.9% of political issues, but we agree on we want our local community to thrive and we can work on those issues. Uh, I, I mean, I've been so troubled by what's going on nationally that I've decided I will do everything in my power to make the community in which I live the best community that it can be and i think you can work with people of all different political views on that whether or not you want a gazebo in the common is not a democrat or republican issue it's an issue Mm -hmm. of civic pride Uh, and i don't mean you ignore all those differences but sometimes if you know we can just be civil and get things done that need to be done on a local level and we don't disagree on those we might disagree on the payment of them and things like that but I look for common ground as much as I can. Thank you, Tom. I'm,
0: I'm going to go to Ann from Arizona and Kelly from Colorado. One is asking special tips for small rural towns and areas. And, Kelly, can this work be done in a county, several towns, or is it just one town at a time? And, and Don, I think you've, you've worked with um, many small towns and certainly ones out west. What are your thoughts about... One, small towns, one town at a time. Can you work on a county level? What's your experience?
2: Yeah, um, th- there's clearly examples of uh, multi-community areas coming together. Um, I think for that to happen, just what we're talking about, there there has to be a set of relationships among those communities um, and uh, for them to be able to collaborate to do this. Um, I think one of the things I like about the affiliation model within community foundations, it, is, it allows communities of interest, communities of place, to create a philanthropic vehicle that have the advantages of scale, uh, where you can focus on the things that you care about around the collaborations that you have, and, and the larger institution can help you with the legal and the financial pieces. Um, In terms of the first question about small towns, it's it's interesting. I'm out in western Nebraska, and we just finished two days of dialogues with very small rural communities. Uh, Most of them peaked in population in the 1890s or the 1930s, depending upon the luck of the draw. Um, And um, I'm absolutely convinced that uh, small communities can be very successful. and and I think part of it is, uh, and this is embedded in heart and soul, is you really have to get in touch with what your genuine assets are. And, and every community has a set of assets. Some communities have more. Um, but you've got to engage in uh, discovering those assets. You've got to engage your community in creating a vision of what you can be, what you want to be. And then I think you have to go to work doing it. And I think two cornerstone strategies. One is the philanthropic strategy because I think to the extent you have some resources that you have control over that you can leverage other resources with is powerful in this current development environment. So that's why I'm very passionate about it. I think the second is how do you build a relevant economy that can provide economic opportunity for people? And and it doesn't matter if you're a small rural community or if you're Detroit, Michigan. Every community has to answer this question, and we have good times and bad times. Um, But I think the key to that is just as you have people who care about your community and will give philanthropically, you also have people in your community who are engaging in commerce, in business, in entrepreneurship, and working with the folks you already have to help them build better ventures that maybe create some jobs and tax base for the rest of the community is really the, 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 the taproot that we want to connect with in terms of creating uh, enough economy that a community has the ability to engage in quality of life, placemaking, and other things. And so hmm. I'm a believer in entrepreneur-focused economic development as a way to proceed um, in, in rural communities.
0: Awesome, Don. Thank you so much. Um I'm gonna I, I realize I, I missed one question that, that came in uh, quite early and it's it's a practical one. It's what's a good example of a structure to receive and distribute the funds raised, uh one that inspires uh confidence to give. So I know some people are very um insecure about uh giving to uh things say on the web, um, but might be very confident with something else. I think Tom, you use the united way. Can can you just start us off quickly on an example sure. of a structure to receive and distribute funds.
3: Sure. Um, two things happened in, in Gardner after the first fire. One was we established a very strong relationship with the United Way. Another thing that happened was well-meaning members of the community set up a GoFundMe page um, to raise money to be distributed by the Gardner Fire Fund, which was a committee that I had pulled together of, of a group of citizens, uh, state reps, et cetera. But what I learned was the easiest way to get the most money in the people's hands was to have the United Way be our fiscal agent for the Go um, for the Gardner Fire Fund. Uh, the GoFundMe sites and sites like that take quite a bit off the top of every donation that's made, and I understand it's a business, but it's a business I don't want to participate in. And I wanted people to have the comfort that if they're giving a hundred dollars. is going to the victims of the fire and not $80 with $20 going to um, who's ever running the server uh, at GoFundMe. And I also think it's important to have a committee that is respected, has members that are respected and is transparent um, because rumors start and you wanna be able to explain exactly what you're doing, why you're doing, how much money you've brought in and how much money you've given out, but without revealing, you know, too much personal information about the people that received it. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Uh, other burning, uh, Don or Lisa, anything to add about the structure to receive or distribute funds? And or maybe you can you know, add what it to it. I you. would
2: add, and it builds on what Tom said, is um, you don't want to screw this up. And so in the urgency of the moment, make sure you have that credible group you have that vehicle that is legitimate and adhering to standards because the least amount of fraud or corruption not only damages what you're doing now but could create uh, uh, resistance in the future to this as a way to build community thank you
0: um molly from michigan has asked that she's currently uh in, the, in a community that's collecting uh, TIFs, tax increments, financing. And so she hears, oh, you already have money for that. How do you change the conversation and influence a different response to your ask? So in other words, if people think um, um, there's enough money that's going into our coffers, why do you need more? Is, what's, what's the pushback that any of you use um, for that kind of response? Lisa, you want to take a stab at it? Who well that? thank you.
1: <laughs> Did someone else want to speak? No, go
0: ahead. Well I'll be
1: I'll jump in. I'll jump in. Um and then yes, love to hear from Don or Tom. Um well that that says to me that um the person who's saying that was not um was not involved in the conversation about the need to raise funds for this other uh, resource that you're trying to to get off the ground um you know i i um bringing people in after the fact is always a challenge um but when it's um and i guess i would say that if one question to ask yourself is is um you know have we reached out to enough people to hear from them about what what is needed in their communities of course not everyone is going to want to give to uh, every project um, but do you need to go and do another round of listening is that something you know do you need to ask more questions about how certain things are going to be funded and and what um, what those priorities need to be y- you know uh, it's it's kind of a drag because <laughs> you you go through a whole process and then you're you know you're uh, and you may speak to hundreds or maybe even thousands of people and then you embark on a direction and then someone who was not involved in that first process could say, well, you didn't ask me. But, you know, it's, I also feel like that's, it's an ongoing process that we have to keep sort of refreshing our knowledge of who is, who is around us because communities do shift and change with time mm-hmm. and make sure that we're, we've got our ear to the ground at all times.
0: Great. And actually, we, we're, we're running out of time. We like to try to keep this on time. There's some questions, Don, about transfer of wealth. I would recommend um, he's got an e-book that is, I think he's he's offering to anybody now, and he might respond to that question in in the document about how to find out about transfer of wealth in your area. Um, two other questions that came up: How do you engage millennials, and also how do you engage church congregations? So I'm going to give each of our speakers um, a final word here. You can either come up with a story about um, a millennial or church congregations and how to get them involved, or if there's that last message that you'd like to give our audience, we welcome that as well. And let's go ahead and start with Lisa.
1: Well, I just want to thank you very much for having me on this call, and thank you, Don and Tom, for the, the wonderful things you've shared with us. Uh, I don't really have anything to add, would love to work with anyone who wants to work with grassroots grantmakers. Uh, my email is in the Google Doc, and I wish everyone well. Thank you.
0: Fabulous. Lisa, thank you so much for your participation today. And, and Don, uh, your, your thoughts about how to um, engage specific types of people or a final thought?
2: Well, um, I'll just speak to the millennial piece. I think it's like any other uh, part of our community there's different pathways and different techniques that you use. But one thing you might think about is if in your part of America you've got an active 4-H program, uh, you've got people then with that program that have deep understanding about uh, the millennial generation and younger generations and how to engage them uh, and appropriately in, in conversations and in the community. So I'd look to that as a resource. Otherwise, yeah, I'd be happy to respond to people's questions about TOE. Um, later. Okay. Terrific, Don. And I also see that
0: a millennial actually responded to that question. That's why we love this Google document. So um, there's a great resource for you. Uh, so, Tom, any um, – your last thoughts?
3: Yeah, quick on, on the millennial question because – and I'll share a short story that I understand must be under one minute. Um, during our – the heart and soul process, you know, we talked to a lot of elderly people. We talked to a lot of young people. And we started noticing they wanted the same things. and it. Subsequent meetings, at one point, someone said, hey, you millennial, what do you want? And the person took great offense to it and said, you know, I want what everybody in the community wants. I want a walkable city. I want things to do. I want to be able to have a place where I can raise my family. My, don't label me and don't assume because I was born on a certain date and time that my views are very different than yours. So I, I, I really worry when we start labeling people.
0: Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining us and for your inspiring stories today. It was great to have you with us. Well, thank you all. And thank you, Don, for sharing your wealth of knowledge.
2: Delighted to be part of the group. Thank you.
0: And Lisa, thank you for joining us uh, today and uh, bringing all your knowledge from Grassroots Grantmakers.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure.
0: So, and many thanks to all of you from across the U.S. and beyond for joining us today. I also would like to thank the Orton Family Foundation who make these sessions possible. We hope you'll take a few minutes to fill out our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for our links to our survey and the May event registration at the top of the Google Doc under Announcements. And please join us for that May 25th event when we talk about how restoring pride in your town can spark revitalizations are a revitalization. Our guests come from towns where pride has been renewed through revisioning, innovation, and preservation, and the results have been significant. A recording of this call will be sent out to participants and posted on our website, www.orton.org. Good money hunting to you all. I hope you please tell uh, your friends about this call, because I think these three guests were just phenomenal, and there's just a wealth of information um, on this call and on the Google Doc. Hope to see you next time. Bye-bye. Have a great day.